50 million people did, in fact, quit a job in the last year. That number is essentially twice what it was uh, 10 years ago. So this is a long-term change uh, that's going on. And add on top of that the work from anywhere so that a third of Americans are now working at part-time at home. Add all those numbers together, basically 100 million Americans will sit down with someone they love today, tonight, this summer, this year, and say, honey, I'm not happy with what I'm doing and I want to do work that makes me happy. That is a massive change. These days, there are a lot of conversations, including on this podcast, about the disruption and reshaping of work life and the reshaping of the workforce as a result of the pandemic. Bruce Feiler is just out with a new book, The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Based on years of research on this topic, his research actually predates the pandemic as he had seen career trends emerging going back years, but the pandemic, of course, was a natural inflection point. Whenever Bruce is working on a book, I'm always curious. He's the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, including Life is in the Transitions, The Secrets of Happy Families, and The Council of Dads. His book, Walking the Bible, describes his 10,000-mile journey retracing the five books of Moses through the desert. The book spent a year and a half on the New York Times bestseller list. His book, Where God Was Born, describes his trek visiting biblical sites throughout Israel, Iran, and Iraq. It was actually when he was working on this book in Iraq that I first met Bruce in Baghdad. Another one of his books, America's Prophet, is the story of the influence of Moses on American history. He's a longtime columnist at the New York Times, and he now has a popular newsletter called The Nonlinear Life on Substack. We'll post the link to it in the show notes. In this conversation, I quibble with some of Bruce's takeaways from his years of research that led to this book, but it's a fun conversation. Bruce is a very thoughtful guy. Bruce Filer and what it means for us and for the economy when people are increasingly building careers in what he calls a post-career world. This is Call Me Back. And I'm pleased to welcome to this podcast for the first time my longtime friend, Bruce. I don't say old friend. I normally say old friend, but then people get offended because it implies that they're old. My longtime friend, uh, Bruce Feiler, who's just out with a terrific book, The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Bruce, thanks for coming on. Dan, thank you very much for Invited me. In fact, when you said long time, I have to say, I went back to the first time we met when I passed through the gates of the palace in Baghdad, where on the upper right hand, there was not blood on the column, right? Because we're not trying to have Passover at this moment. But what there in fact was on the upper right hand column, as you walked through the gates of the, you, you'll probably remember the name, which I don't, yeah. the one of Saddam's yeah. palaces. It in was the Republican Baghdad. Guard Palace. It was the Republican, Republican Guard, Guard Palace. Palace. Yeah. There was the deck of cards with the faces of the, the, the most prominent targets of the U.S. government at the time with like unceremonious, like, I don't know, Sharpie X's over them on, yep. uh, on some kind. So good, we, good memory. That was the Pentagon and the uh, CENTCOM's deck of cards for the for the most wanted of the Iraqi uh, military and political leadership pre Saddam era. That is where we first met, 
So that was, and I can date it now. I'm interrupting you, but I'm about Go to ahead. celebrate my 20th wedding anniversary, and it was like six months after we were married, so it was 20 years ago. Wow. Okay. So that, and you were going through Iraq. Now that was for your second book on the Bible, right? That was for uh, your first. That was for was where your, God. That was for where God was born. Right. Right. My first walking the was Bible, walking the Bible, which was 2001. Yeah, 2001, and then Abraham was after that, and then where God was born. So, so technically, it was my third. But yes, right, right, not to nitpick. Right. So, so you were working. You were working on a series of books, uh, uh, which we're going to talk about in a minute, or, uh, tracing the footsteps, various characters' footsteps in the Bible, and, and part of that was in Baghdad or, or Iraq, and you yeah. needed help navigating Iraq. Uh, maybe let's start there, and then we'll talk about. Well, you know what. Let's talk. Start with walking the Bible because that was the beginning of this journey. So, can you talk about walking the Bible? Because I've said this to you. I've said this. I think walking the Bible was one of the most innovative books I've ever read. Um, but rather than me describe it, can you describe just briefly walking the Bible? Because it led to a series of books on this subject matter that you wrote about. So I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and to me, in some ways, the story really begins there. Five generations of Jews in the American South. I grew up in Mikveh Israel Synagogue, which is the third oldest in the country, founded in July of 1733. And my father became its president. My mother was its first president in its 275-year history at the time. And in some ways, sort of everything that everything that I've done professionally, you know, eventually we'll get to the search, which in kind of one of the kind of one of the big ideas in the search is that we all have this story that we've been telling our whole lives. You know, and in my story is I grew up I grew up in the South and I love the familyness and the storytellingness and the stickiness. But I grew up Jewish in the South, which meant I was sort of a part of it, but apart from it. And I grew up Jewish and Jew being Jewish is really important to me. I like the familyness and the storytellingness and the stickiness. But I grew up Jewish, not not even outside of the traditional sort of story of, of Judaism as it began in the ancient world, but also even apart from American Judaism in the South. So I was a part of it, but apart from it. And my whole life, in some ways, is about sort of entering a culture, becoming a part of it, and then leaving and explaining it to people who might like to know, you know, what it was about. So in my 20s, my first book was called Learning to Bow. As you know, it was about teaching mm-hmm. junior high school in, in Japan. After that, I went to Cambridge and got a master's degree and wrote a book called Looking for Class about sort of inside the British aristocracy. I spent a year as a, cir- uh, as a circus clown <laughs> in the Clyde Beatty Cold Brothers Circus. And again, apart, 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 that apart from, apart of, that was always the tension. And so in this sort of journey through life, I moved to Nashville in my, in my early 30s to write a book about country music. And I spent a year traveling with Garth Brooks and Winona and a bunch of other people. And I was living across the street from three churches. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to be more conversant with the Bible. I hadn't really read it since I was a kid, which meant I hadn't really read it. So I took quite literally my bar mitzvah Bible off my shelf. I put it by my bed and it sat there, you know, collecting dust for two years. And then I went to visit an old friend from Savannah, actually, who had married a rabbi and made Aliyah and moved to Jerusalem. And on day one... I'm not sure you and I have ever really talked about this origin story. We went to the the promenade uh, overlooking Jerusalem, where I'm sure you've been many yeah, times. Many times, and oh, well, south 
you know, you you yeah. look toward Bethlehem, and at the uh-huh. time, Harchama was this really controversial settlement, and like that was in the news. Okay, this would have been the late 1990s, and then you look north, and there was that. And we can debate zone. whether or not it was an actual settlement, but we won't get into it. But yes, yeah, it was yeah, controversial. Well, you know, yes, a suburb was, of Jerusalem. It was, right. It was a. It was a. Yeah, it's fine. So it was a. Contra- <laughs> it was a. It was a controversial. It was controversial. Place controversial. At the time. Uh, this is what's always been special about our relationship is <laughs> right. we don't mind, you know, like going there. And, it, and it, you know, it's sort of an example. Like yeah. you can love each other and sometimes have different politics. Right. But, and I looked and so my friend said that's where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, which, by the way, you can also debate. Right. Um, but we will leave that off stage. And I just thought, wow, these are real places you can touch and visit and feel. And this kind of crazy way I had lived my life, which was traveling around and becoming a part of different cultures and then, you know, becoming a part from them and telling other people, I thought, what if I travel along the route and read the Bible along the way? In fact, what I said to myself, which I never said publicly for a long time, was what if I like join the Bible as if it were the circus, right? And sort of become a part of it and like meet the characters and go to the places. And the essential idea was that I would physically go to the places, right? I, it, and I would then read the stories in the places and see what you could learn about the stories by going to them, right? I used to call it topographical midrash. And that's what I did. And everyone thought this was a crazy idea, right? This is too dangerous. Like, there's conflict. Like, there's nothing to did see you when you pitch, get there. Did, did you, I never asked you this. Did you pitch this idea to the publisher before you went on the journey? Or did you go yes. on the journey? And do, okay, and, and the publisher bought it before you went on the journey actually bought it and the next book pre- wow. pre-sold like okay. like okay. they but although so it's a very it. interesting it's a very interesting story and I shouldn't divert this but, but it's your podcast and mm-hmm. in fact and and the second I had the idea like you know you've written books you and I have had many conversations over the years about books and one of my theories is book titles come on day 1 or day the last they never come in the middle and if you go through all of my book titles it fits one or the other and Walking the Bible came day one. And so the, the book contract that was signed was for, for Walking the Bible and an unnamed, unknown at the time, follow-up book. In fact, that contract was a defining moment in my life because it made me realize I could actually, you know, sort of do this, so, so to speak. And yeah, an hour before I was going to sign the contract, my agent called and said, they want to add one contingency that you not call the book Walking the Bible. Oh my god. Because it sounds because it sounds like a travel guide. And I said I won't sign the I I mean I literally like this was more money. I mean it, you know than I had ever seen in one place and I was like then I won't sign the contract. I don't care. Um and they folded. And I signed the contract, yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay, and then it was a huge hit, bestseller. Uh and then you You're and a half then, in fact on the bestseller list, yeah. Wow. And then you did I mean that that's really interesting in and of itself because I think you 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 appealed to a whole, a pretty diverse group of audiences. Um, yes, uh, I'd say about a third. It's interesting. About a third of it was Jewish, but two thirds was Christian. Yeah. And now that I know more about the book business, like it was fifty fifty male female. That was the other thing that was interesting about it, which is kind of rare. But even among uh, the the the, the non Jewish readership, I and probably some of the Jewish le- readership, uh, a big chunk of them were not necessarily religious. 
they were right and that was part of the appeal and i think that that book now in retrospect i mean i can talk forever about this and i know we have other things yeah. you want to talk about uh, but that book was coming out that book came out in in march of 2001 and by the way it was instant it just like mm -hmm. happened you know mm -hmm. like there was t television there was you know the big huge profile of yep. full page thing in USA Today, Jay Leno made a joke on The Tonight Show. I mean, like it was just one of those things that went pop and instant and just, just sold and sold and sold for a decade. Uh, I went back and made a TV series and all, all these things, but it was it was coming at this moment the uh, where people were beginning to question, right? Right. Because uh, Da Vinci Code was around that time. And I used to go to all these churches and synagogues, like hundreds and hundreds of them, to talk or go to book clubs or Sunday school groups or whatever. And there would always be a poster in the corner, like, come on Thursday night to discuss Da Vinci Code. And, and what I realized was nobody, none of those churches or synagogues wanted to have that, particularly the churches, conversation. Mm -hmm. But they were forced to. So it was this moment when... People were breaking away. They still had questions. Also, travel was, you know, sort of it was the, also the pop travel thing. Mm -hmm. So just a bunch of things converged, and it was just the right book at the right moment in time. So then, again, on in that genre was Where God Was Born and Abraham, yeah. and then at some point, you, tra you transition to a completely different genre, which is... Because well, my life blew up, and that's right. what happened. That's so my, let's, my life blew up. So let's talk about... Not, yeah, not I think I want you to revisit life blowing up, but... You, your yeah. words, not mine. Well, so. it's well. That's what happened, and I think that that's that's central to the story. So now, I, I think of the, the story that we've been talking about now as a kind of classic linear life that we all fantasize about. Like mm -hmm. I figured out. I mean, I sold my first book when I was twenty-four, right? So like, and I figured out what I wanted to do early. I did. Yeah, it for you no were money. you were on a tear career-wise. Yeah, I mean, you, I, you, then you, I just, had just then I had. Look, listen to what you just said. This massive success with these yeah. books about the Bible, television. I mean, everything. Everything was going yeah. away, and I got married, and I had children, and like this was the fantasy, you know, in the in in the in the business terms that you live in, yeah. you know, it's the hockey stick, and this was the this was the the shaft of the hockey stick, until my forties and my life blew up. So first I got cancer, as you know, as a forty three year old uh, father of identical twin daughters who were three at the time. Mm -hmm. Then I had financial troubles because my family owned a bunch of real estate in Georgia, and then my father who had Parkinson's got very depressed and tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. So here I am a storyteller, right? I'm not just a professional storyteller. I think about storytelling, like a lot of these biblical things were about the role of narrative in building a nation and building identity and building you know, individual sort of character, if you will. And I had a story that I didn't know how to tell and I didn't want to tell. And this sort of all climaxes at my 30th college reunion, and I drive up, you know, I live in Brooklyn, as you know, and I mm -hmm. was, and I went up to my, it was my 30th Yale reunion, and I was in the car with a buddy of mine, and he was, um, he was on top of the world. He was closing a $400 million real estate deal, and he was using my car phone to close that deal, and he was very happy, and then talked to his colleagues because the previous day, one of his partners had a nine-month-old, and the nine-month-old went down for a nap and never woke up. So he is on top of the world and like weeping in this two-hour car ride. And I was moderating a panel that afternoon. I had 250 people, very prominent people to either side of me. I had their resumes like all neatly typed. I'm sorry for banging my yes, wedding sorry. ring on the table here. Um, and I ripped up the resumes and I said, like, you know what? 
losers don't come to their 30th college reunion. I don't want to hear your successes. I want to hear what keeps you awake at night and what you're struggling with and what you're not telling anybody. And that night, we had one of those barbecues. Like there was a barbecue, literally BQ, and a yeah. bar on the other end. And it took me two hours to walk from one side to the other because every person came up and told me a story. Like, I'm being sued for malpractice. My boss just stole money from me. My wife went into the hospital and died the next day. My daughter is cutting herself. You know, on and on and on and on. And I called my wife, Linda, whom you know well, and I yeah. said, no one knows how to tell their life story anymore. And I want to do something to help. And what I did was I created this thing called the Life Story Project, and I have spent basically every day in the six years since, almost to the week as we have this conversation, collecting life stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life, all income levels, all 50 states. You know, and we can get into it, Dan, but you know, in the field of narrative psychology, which my work is sort of adjacent to, an average academic paper in this space will have eight, 10, 12 of these stories. In six years, I've collected 400 of them. In 50 states? In all 50 states. And and were you doing a lot of this during the pandemic? Uh, it started before the pandemic. In fact, yeah. the first book I wrote about this, Life is in the Transitions, uh, be, I well, it came out, That the, book came out right in the first phase of the pandemic, I remember. Well, exactly. But what, what was interesting, so all I knew when I started this project was like, no one knew how to tell their story. So I would meet somebody and I would, you know, seek them out and I would say, mm -hmm. tell me the story of your life. And I had very sort of organized questions and these conversations would go on two, three hours. And it was in the act of listening over and over, I realized mm -hmm. what sort of became kind of the big idea that emerged from that, which is the linear life is dead, right? So the idea that we're going to have you know, sort of one set of things in our 20s and one set of things in our 30s and then have a midlife crisis. I mean, this is all cockamamie. In fact, it goes back to the ancient world because in the ancient world, they thought of life as a cycle. Mm -hmm. Right? To every season, turn, turn, turn. There's no linear time. In fact, the Bible in the West introduces the idea of linear time, even the Hebrew Bible in particular, right? You've got the, the first creation story with you know, named characters and a family. Like, this introduces it. But even in the Middle Ages... Like they think life is a staircase up to middle age and then a staircase down. And it's not until the birth of science, I mean, no one ever talks about the story that, that the idea of linear progression enters. And every idea that you and I grew up with, I'm older than you are, but it, it, it was a linear construct. Piaget, childhood development. Freud, psychosexual stages. Erickson, eight stages of moral development. The five stages of grief, the hero's journey. These are all linear constructs. And it reaches its peak with Gail Sheehy, who writes Passages in 1976, which introduces the idea, which she plagiarized uh, from, from two, uh, there was actually a lawsuit that she lost, uh, that she stole this idea from Roger Gould at UCLA. And he sued her and she won, excuse me, and he won, and she had no money because she was a single mom, and she promised him, I'll just give you 10% of the proceeds of this book I'm going to write, which went on to sell 20 million copies. So we all have this idea that life is linear and you have a bit, it's all bunk. Right. Just truly just bad science, bad idea, misleading, dangerous, I would say. <laughs> and in fact, we have nonlinear lives, and you know, we can get into it or not get into it, but, but, but that's the concept, what that book but is the, about. But the concept you introduced was what you called a life quake. Yeah. And just totally coincidentally, your book comes out while the whole world is kind of experiencing a life quake. Like literally. Well, this, is the, this is exactly the point I was going to say, right? Which is that I had to, I wonder, why isn't there, so the big idea was that we go through disruptors, three dozen of them, and we go through three to five life quakes, as I call them, in your lives. 
the signature piece of data from that book well, is can that you just a life explain quake, what a life quake is i mean it's yeah so a life quake is a moment of disruption it can be voluntary you know, or it could be involuntary, right? You get a diagnosis, you know, there's a natural disaster, right? You lose your, you lose your legs, you get laid off. And 47% of them about are, are, are uh, involuntary, but, 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 but that means a lot of them are voluntary, right? So, right, you know, you choose to leave, you choose to start a company. You know, I'm the father of identical twin daughters. Uh, we, I mentioned them earlier, they're now 18, they're going to graduate from high school as we have this conversation mm-hmm. in a few days and go to college in the fall. And uh, thank you. Um, that was joyful. That was planned. I mean, it wasn't planned that they'd be identical daughters, like, but it was a life quake. Like it, you know, it disrupted everything in, in, in our lives. But so we go through and they take five years of life quake, three to five, four or five years. That's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we spend in transition. So what is a transition? A transition is the human response to a life quake, right? So if the way I like to think about it is if the life quake, life quake puts us on our heels, the life transition puts us on our toes, right? It's how we respond to it. And I wandered around in 2019, early 2020, that book is supposed to come out in the spring of 2020, saying, we spend half our lives in transition. Why has there not been a major book in transitions in 40 years? Like, we all need to be talking about that. And everyone said, yeah, thank, that's very nice. And then the pandemic comes, and suddenly the entire planet is in a life transition right. at the same time for the first time in a century. So we had this conversation. In fact, your, your um, amazing, uh, wonderful, generous wife, Campbell Brown, introduced me. But I mean, I'm here remotely in my Brooklyn. You guys were in Colorado. I remember, I remember she's, um, sitting in, she's sitting in our kitchen <laughs> interviewing you. For a was it politics and prose? I think it was. Yeah, it was it, a book. It was, it was like the book launch because it was all remote in Washington D.C. Doing a, I was like, you're doing an interview. That's <laughs> like a Bruce. He's in Brooklyn. We're in Colorado. You're interviewing for a book event that's in Washington D.C. I was like, what is going? Now, of course, it seems perfectly normal, but uh, at the moment, because and so just again, I going. sort of had the right book at the right time, and right. I, you know, and became bestseller, a TED Talk with mm-hmm. two million views. Now I teach this TED course and life transitions. And so that book comes out and suddenly I'm sitting in the right place at the right time. And it, um, and then and a, maybe a week later, yeah. I was having a drink with my editor. We actually met in person and took off our masks. Like, you yeah. know, is that cool? And <laughs> I say, work is the next domino to fall. This is going to change everything about work. It's the convergence of the public health crisis, right? The technological, like suddenly you can do work from anywhere, which is not something uh, 95% of us had ever imagined before, right? And the social justice movement and Me Too were happening, right? So all these things were converging and I was like, this is gonna change work. I wanna go do it again. And that became the the impetus for, for what brings us here today. Okay, so now let's talk about uh, the search. So you say, according to to your research, 50 million Americans quit a job in the last year, but a third of them are not necessarily quitting, but they're renegotiating their deals. So, and for 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 um, to achieve things uh, that that one wouldn't think were uh, the ambition of people in in another time, meaning they're they're looking yes. for, for okay. So so can you contextualize both those numbers, both the 50 million Americans yes. and a third of the workforce, or a third of those 50 million? Oh no! Sorry, a third of the workforce that are either quitting jobs or renegotiating the terms of their jobs because that's a big number, and it seems to me that could mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Correct. Like, so I think yeah. So let's start with the, the stakes here of what's of what's going on. I sort of felt this was coming, and now it's it's upon us, right? Because when I started this, 
the great resignation, quiet quitting, all these, you know, sort of the big tug of war that's happening now between workers come back to the office. Don't, this was all in the future. Um, uh, but it became apparent as I was gathering these interviews. So we, as we have this conversation today, there's a number of things that are just true. I don't assert it. These are independent numbers, right? So according to Gallup, 70% of Americans are unhappy with what they do, okay? According to the Muse, three quarters of Americans will look for new work this year. I don't say 50 million people quit. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, which every month reports this number, 50 million people did, in fact, quit a job in the last year. That number is essentially twice what it was uh, 10 years ago. So the idea that this all happened in in, in the great resignation is, is, a, is, a, is a lie and it's a myth and we should put it out of our minds. The, the What's called the quit rate has gone up essentially every single year this century, except for one after the after the great resignation. I mean, excuse me, the great recession. So this is a long-term change uh, that's going on. And add on top of that, the work from anywhere so that a third of Americans are now working at part-time I mean, at least part-time at home. And there, that means, add all those numbers together, that means basically 100 million Americans will sit down with someone they love today, tonight, this summer, this year, and say, honey, I'm not, I'm not happy with what I'm doing and I want to do work that makes me happy. That is a massive change. Why? is that change going on? Well, first of all, what does the change mean? The big, the big idea that emerges in this book, mm -hmm. right, is we can get into it, but it turns out that there's what I call the three lies and the truth about work that we've all been told for a long time. But the big convergence, what, what is at stake, is that fewer people are searching for work, fewer people are searching merely for work, and more people are searching for work with meaning. Okay, we are transitioning from what I call a means-based economy to a meaning-based economy. And this is led by a whole new generation of workers, okay? Younger, more female, more diverse, people who are pushing back on an idea about work that has been around since we're partly preaching here today, you and I, the Garden of Eden. Okay, what happened, the most influential story of work ever written is, is, is Genesis 1, because what happens in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve get kicked out? What is the punishment? They have to work. That's literally what it says. You now have to work. So since that time, we have said that work is supposed to be miserable, <laughs> and people are not prepared to sign on to that agreement anymore. And we can talk about why that is, what the consequences are, because it affects every worker, and it darn sure affects anybody running or leading an organization as they have to, as they try to recruit and re retain talent, we are in what I call the meaning moment. And this is the biggest change in work, you know, in a hundred years. And one of the fourth biggest changes in, in the, in the history of, of work, you know, going back to uh, the ancient world. Okay. So Bruce, let me, let me just push back a little bit. Um, Please. so the CEO or the editor in chief of a major publication, I won't say his name, but you and I both know him well personally. Um, I was once in a in a session uh, uh, conference kind of event with him, but it wasn't it wasn't on the record. And and I asked him what's the what's any employees hundreds of journalists. I said what's the biggest difference between the journalists and the journalism and the career of journalism you see today versus when you were getting started in the business as a young you know kind of cub reporter. And he paused and he said, you know. When I got started as a reporter, which was probably, um, thinking, he's probably, you know, probably about 30, 30, 30, 40 years ago, he says, 
there's this term um, that I that I never knew that I hear now all the time from people who work for me. It's called job satisfaction. <laughs> he says he says these these young reporters now they come to me and they're like I'm looking for more job satisfaction. He's like, what the <laughs> hell is job? Satisfaction? You take your exactly. notepad, you take your yeah. your your goddamn tape recorder yeah. and yeah. you your shoe leather and you go like work 15 yeah. hours a day get yourself caffeinated and you go be- and like you're happy that you have a job and you're happy that you're making $26,000 a year uh, and yeah. I, and and if that's not satisfaction like you know you got you got problems and he's like and, and he spends half his time now indulging yeah. these these young people who if i were to yeah. put a light, slightly different spin on how what you're describing they have this yeah. overly idealized view of work, and it's like it's like an experience. It's not work; yeah. it's an experience. And I don't feel like it's a yeah. Satya Nadella just came out and said, "I can't have meetings anymore. I have to have experiences." <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's that's the change. That's what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I, because I'm interested in these things, the algorithm on my social media, like every week, sends me this clip from Mad Men where the John Hamm character is talking to the young woman who works for him. It's like, yeah, what do you mean you want to be? It's the greatest exchange. She says, "I want you to say thank you." That's the way it works. There are no credits on commercials. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's what the money is for. You're young, you will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Everything to you is an opportunity. And you should be thanking me every morning when you wake up, along with Jesus, for giving you another day. The, the money is the thank money you. Is the yeah. <laughs> this goes back. This is why you're framing this with the 50 million people, I think, is the essential frame. She'll walk. Okay. But She'll is, walk. But and she, she wouldn't she may walk, before. walk But, Bruce, she may walk because she can walk. And that's what I'm trying to get at. That's what I'm Correct. getting at. That's is what's this going the by. province yes. of, is this, is yeah. what you are describing, not really 50 million people? Is it really the hmm. province of um, some very privileged, dare I say, no. entitled people, no, but it's no. not really all swaths of the socioeconomic landscape. Uh, it's no. really just a pretty elite um, section of it. No. Um, n- no. I mean, first of all, my own study, you know, half the people uh, made less than $100,000, and they're, you know, 60% of millennials tell pollsters uh, a, Gallup, a Gallup poll that, that meaning is more important to them, to their parents. Nine out of 10 people in a study out of Harvard done by Sean Acor uh, say that they are prepared to give up a quarter of their lifetime earnings uh, for work that is meaningful. They're met, you know, metric after metric, survey after survey. But the answer, the question is why, okay? So now let's get into uh, the why of it all. So why the big why is that, and why people kind of let's just say 50 plus, um, are having a hard time like your you know, friend or maybe even our mutual friend, the editor, understanding this, okay? Line number one, you have a career, okay? The idea of the career, for most of human history, there was never an idea of a career, okay? 90% of people lived where they worked and worked where they lived and you just, that's what you did, okay? The idea of the career is invented in the 19th century as people move uh, there's this big change going on. People move from rural areas to cities and tens of millions more join them from overseas. I was on a prominent <laughs> cable television business channel three days ago and I was asked, hey, 
4,000 people lost their job last month for AI. How are we going to deal with this cataclysm? To which my response was, do you know how many people lost their job you know, in the last two decades? To which my response was, do you know how many people lost their jobs in the last two decades uh, of the 19th century when electricity and the car and you know, the plow were invented? A third of the country. <laughs> so so the, 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 this AI thing is, is, is a blip in the radar and it will ultimately create more jobs than it's going to cost. So a third of the, the country relocated from rural well, it's areas a blip, but it's also, we've seen it before, is your point. I mean, it's, Yeah, of course we, we've yeah, seen it before. Yeah. Radio, television, the computer. The printing like press. Yeah. <laughs> Steam engine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so what's going on? They suddenly arrive in cities and they don't have anything to do. Plus, there's all these new industries and businesses that had never existed and they don't have any way to get people. So a guy named Frank Parsons, who's a writer and engineer himself, went through 20 jobs. In 1908, opens the first career counseling center and essentially invents the idea of the career. And what is the idea? The idea is that once in your life, if you're a man, at 21, you're going to pick an occupation and you're going to do it for the next 40 years. And if you deviate from that path, then there is something psychologically wrong with you, is what he says. And every way we've talked about uh, work since has been, here we go again, this linear idea. Okay, the career track, the career path, okay, the corporate ladder. What is the resume, which is essentially invented in the 1950s? No one ever needed a resume. It's, it's not that old. It was invented in the 50s, a series of successive linear jobs, each one bigger than the last. Okay, first of all, that's done in an age when it's only men. So what is that stigmatize? Taking time off to spend with your family, starting a company and maybe it fails and you want to come back to the workforce, going into public service as you, my friend, did as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, to run for political office, to, you know, to give back any of these things. Changing your occupation is deadly. People will think you're a job hopper. That was the great insult. Okay. So line number one is you have a career. Line number two is you have a path. My data show that we go through 20, here we go again, of what I call work quakes. So what is a work quake? Okay, we have 20 in our lives. That's one every two and a half years. So what's a work quake? Same thing as before. It's a jolt. It's a disruption where you're either forced to or you choose to rethink or reimagine what you do. But here's the thing. Women go through them more than men. Xers go through them more than boomers. Millennials more than Xers. Zers, no doubt, will do it more than millennials. Diverse workers more than non-diverse workers. So as the workforce gets, what is it now? Majority young, majority female, you know, increasingly diverse. As of 2019, according to the Labor Department, most people hired are black and brown women. So as the diverse, younger, more female workforce becomes the dominant workforce, and now millennials and Gen Z are half the workforce, they're saying, I ain't playing by these old rules. And what I, t I told you, the signature piece of data from Life is in the Transitions is that we go through uh, uh, you know, three to five life quakes and they take five years. Mm -hmm. That's half of our adult lives. The signature piece of data from the search is that 45% of work quakes begin in the workplace. Okay? Conflict with your boss. The company shuts down. Okay? You get fired. That means 55%, the majority of work quakes, work quakes begin outside of the workplace. Something happens with your family, your health, okay? Or you just change your mind about what you want to do. So what your buddy and everybody else listening to us needs to, you know, uh, uh, confront is that in the battle between life and work, life is playing a greater and greater role and we're not going back. So again, I want to I want to push a little bit here because uh, what I've Please. seen with 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 say with Israeli entrepreneurs so Israeli entrepreneurs, 
have, among their many motivations, I find always two. One is they want to become fantastically wealthy, like their peers in Silicon Valley or London or Berlin or, you know, anywhere in these tech ecosystems. And they feel that building really innovative companies to solve really big global problems is a contribution to the world, and it's a contribution to the sort of national cause of putting Israel on the map. So they, so in a sense, it's not a choice. It's not these two ideas aren't in conflict. They are. Mm-hmm. They are. They are getting me, to use your, you know, your yes. your terminology, the means and meaning. They're doing both. Yes. They're in pursuit of both. Yes, correct. So that could also be going on here, and you're and you're looking at it saying, aha. They want meaning. Because I do find when I talk to these entrepreneurs, the meaning part is really, really important to them. They want to, uh, they want to do big things for, for their country and for the world. Yes. But they're not divorced from also material gains and the ambition to accumulate them. Right. And so I think that – so here's my response to that. So we've talked about lie number one. We've talked about lie number two. I'll briefly talk about lie number three, which is that you have a job. Because it turns out you don't just have a job. We all have up to five jobs. There's a main job, which frankly only half of us even have by some metrics, a main job, a care job like caring for children or aging relatives, mm-hmm. which both you and I have been doing in real time in recent years. Okay, A side job, three quarters of us have that. We hear about that all the time. But then 89% of us have what I have termed a hope job, which is something that we're doing that we hope becomes something else like writing a screenplay, writing a book about Israeli entrepreneurs, selling pickles at the farmer's market, or starting a company. Mm-hmm. Okay? And in fact, often these hope jobs or start running a podcast are things that we pay out of pocket for. And what, so what's going on is that what's non-negotiable now, Dan, is the meaning. The question is where you're going to get it from. If you can get it from your main job, if starting a company gives you, you know, can give you means and meaning, which we can dig into in a second, that's great. But a lot of people, it can't. Mm-hmm. So maybe their main job gives them salary and benefits, but their side job or their hope job gives them the meaning that they're looking for. I mean, I'm thinking of a guy named Sang Kim, first-generation Korean-American, you know, comes to Queens, lives, shares a, be- a bedroom and a bathroom with multiple sisters. He's, he's a first-generation immigrant, like a lot of people that we know, and a lot of pressure. He becomes a lawyer at Goldman Sachs. But what was his toothache, as I call it, the thing that always nagged at him? <laughs> making that bedroom and making that bathroom nicer. So he starts helping buddies remodel their bathrooms, and he opens an interior design company. That's, first of all, his hope job. Then it becomes his side job, and eventually he wants to do it. So he jumps, and he starts a interior design firm, but he can't yet fully make the money, so he like has the side job doing some legal clients to make it work. That is a kind of a perfect example of how we use this fluidity today to get the meaning because we want the meaning. Because if we don't get it from our main job, we're going to do something else to give it to give us the meaning. And the big difference as we get into, so those are the three lies. What's the one truth? The one truth is that only you can write your own story, right? Only you can decide what makes you happy. And that gets to the question of your entrepreneurs, which is it used to be there's only one metric of success, which is the money. And now... There's other metrics. And so money can be meaning as much as anything else. But there's other things that also um, can provide meaning. And we have to revisit that calculus and that equation 20 different times in our lives. You write about 
the the not the end of, but um, people focusing less on climbing and more on digging. Yeah. Here maybe we'll excuse you since you're not actually a native-born American. Yes, I am. This, yes, I yeah. am. I was. I, I we moved to Canada when I was young. Oh, I was. Okay. I was born in Utica, New York. Then we moved to Canada for my dad's work because he lost the job because the mayor of, of Utica lost his re-election campaign. And we moved to Canada. My dad took a job. And then I moved back later. So I, I had Canadian oh. residency but never uh, citizenship. So That will significantly help your run for the presidency. Exactly. Someday. But <laughs> I also got to experience taxation with representation for the first time. Uh, anyways, go ahead. Um, I, I learned this about you today. I'm grateful for that uh, that uh, tidbit. The circus played Utica, so I've, I've been in Utica. Um, the story we've been telling is all about climbing. Going back to Ben Franklin, really, in his autobiography. Uh, up by your bootstraps, rags to riches, yeah, higher floor, bigger office, more salary, you know, greater benefits. Better view. Yeah, the whole thing. The number one thing I learned in hundreds of hours, I've done 1,500 hours of these conversations, 10,000 pages of transcripts. The number one thing I learned about work is the people who are happiest and most fulfilled get the most meaning from what they do. They don't climb, they dig. They do what I call a meaning audit, right? They perform personal archaeology. Now you're getting this, you know, the person who's been to, you know, as many archaeological sites around the world mm-hmm. as almost of anybody that I know. And they go on this sort of treasure hunt of their life and they identify what is the thing that they inherited from their parents about work. And they, you know, what are their earliest role models? What are their toothaches? Where are they now? What is important to them at any given moment? And that's why sort of the bulk of the search is what I call 21 questions to find work you love. It's a, it's a process to put yourself through to do this meaning audit to define what it is uh, that meaning means to you. So let's just take one of these questions, because mm-hmm. I think it will make a lot of this make a lot more sense. The first question. So I interview people. I talk to people like you do. First question I asked everybody was, um, what's the upside prominent values or upsides about work you learned from your parents? Let me ask you, what were the prominent upsides or values you learned from your parents? Oh, my gosh. Uh, my from I mean, just like lessons for professional life or lessons for life? About work. No, what's the value of prominent upsides or the number one value of work you learned from your parents? Uh, well, my father and my mother both had Jewish community-related jobs. So my father worked in—they in, they both had lives that were—they both had jobs that were anchored in the Jewish community. And the two greatest values that they each derived was a sense that they were, A, doing something to strengthen the Jewish community wherever they lived, and that they got to— work in jobs that had respect for the Jewish calendar. So they were very observant Jews, and they never felt any sort of eye-roll, annoyance, or stigma around the fact that their observance meant that they had to leave early on Fridays, that they missed every—they they weren't at work for every single holiday, not just Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but Shavuot and Sukkot and, you know, go down the list. So—, so being a part of the community was important to them and in a professional sense, not just a philanthropic sense, and that the community res- and that their job respected their their life, their family life, their religious life. So so what were the prominent downsides or shadows of work you learned from your parents? Hmm. 
<laughs> By the way, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. Uh, I'm uh, the power of this process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I would, I would say they. Um, well, first of all, they they were they were both in jobs that had very had a real ceiling on their earning potential. These were not oh, these were not jobs that were were going to. Uh, I mean, I guess they sort of made them financially secure, but not um, not comfortable. So when I ask this question, two. Th- we crunch the numbers. That's what we do around here. It turns out that two-thirds of people say that the prominent value of work they learned from their parents was the value of hard work. Mm-hmm. And I kept asking these questions. I'm like, I'm missing something. Like, there's just, uh, like, there's just, uh, there's. So then I started asking, what are the prominent downsides? Mm-hmm. Here's where it got interesting. So two-thirds of people say that the prominent value they learned was the value of hard work. The number one downside, overwork, hmm. followed by strain on the family, followed by happiness. Like my parents worked all the time, it kept them away from the family, they were unhappy, and it drove them into the ground. So we are one question into what I call the 21 questions here, and already you're beginning to see that we are all shaped by these invisible ideas, values. I, I, I've come to call it, I mean, this conversation sort of will make it make more sense than many conversations I have. I call it your internal scripture about work. This mix of like stories and parables and homilies and life lessons, right, that we have. We are given a script. The script is climb, you know? Each job must be higher and bigger. But we have this scripture, you know? And if there's like one thing you should do is ignore the script you were given. Stop chasing someone else's dream. Listen to your own scripture and identify it. And that's the only way to be mean. Now, I happen to know what you do now. And I happen to know that you are balancing these things. Okay? That you are balancing, and now we hear it, something that will give you some financial upside because means, money, providing from your family is important to you, even though you're in a two-breadwinning you know, family. But also, you're not prepared to sacrifice the values, the meaning, the family, the building the community, the having your voice, whatever it might be. You, that is in you, has been in you since you, before you could verbalize it. And if you, but the thing is, your life is built around trying to make it come true. For most people, it's not. I mean, I talked to this one, Mary Robinson. She lost her father when she was 11. And she was told, don't mourn, you know, stiff upper lip it. She couldn't cope. Drinking, sex, like lost all of her friends, became literally, she wanted to flee so much, she became a, you know, a stewardess is what it was called at the time. And she came back, she worked for Prudential, you know, ultimately giving away money. And she goes to church one day and she hears a preacher. She goes home to her childhood bedroom, has a fight with her mother, lies down in her childhood bed and said, I've been running from this, I call it your toothache, from this Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. My whole life, she walks away from a Fortune 500 company to work for and then start an organization that helps families and children grieve the loss of a loved one. Mm. So she has spent 40 years running away from her story until she digs, finds out the story she wants to be telling, and then realigns her life, and now she's happier than she's ever been. You know, I, I lost my father when I was young, and the, 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 the financial piece of having, you know, uh, you know, and the pressure on my mother, I mean, it just it brought that into sharp relief, the, the, a life quake. 
and then the and then the financial uh, obviously a lot wrapped up in that but the but the pressure the financial pressure uh, which by the way i mean to, to 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 bring another one of the questions you start with the past because this is storytelling your work story mm-hmm. past present a simple question like i'm at a moment in my life when you ask yourself this next time you're in a work week i'm or ask it now i'm at a moment in my life when I'm in a moment in my life when I want to make money because I want to pay off my student loans or in my case about to send two daughters to college, right? I'm in a moment when I have young children or my mother's going through chemo and I don't want to miss the appointment. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to have a job that's going to make me travel you know, two weeks a month. Okay. Or I'm in a moment when I've been doing the same thing, maybe a lot of people listen to us for a very long time and I want to give back or I want to fight climate change or I want to go to Iraq and serve our country or I want to run for political office or I want to make my community, my religious or my neighborhood community better. You would not have made, I I don't care what was, you would not have made certain decisions in your life when your boys were really young and being a father was important to you in Mm -hmm. part because, you know, no doubt because you lost your father, but just because it's how you're built, you would have turned down anything not to be, in a job that required you to travel three weeks a month. You wouldn't have done it. So the well, point is not that means froze. is never important. It's that it's not always important and it's not the only thing that's important. It changes and morphs and evolves over time. Your story is oscillating. It's not linear. It's not always climbing. It's bobbing and weaving and doing whatever other, other shape uh, you wanted to do. Okay. Bruce, I want to... Uh, that, that was... Um, intense and I want to end on a less intense note okay now I told you we run the risk on this podcast of talking about football but I'm actually going to switch gears because I, I want to talk for a minute about basketball all right now we talk, you and I oh, talk basketball about no, no but don't, don't worry there's a reason you and I talk about sports we usually talk about football you give me service about the Jets the reality is I'm, I'm feeling like I'll be shepping Nachas this fall for the Jets but but we, we don't have to get into that debate we've had that debate I, w- I want to tell you Two episodes ago, I had Tyler Cowen on this podcast, who's a basketball obsessive, and um, and he wrote a whole book about talent, and he wrote a whole book about how to recruit talent and pick, you know, identify talent, and in the sports world, he thinks LeBron James is is like emblematic of everything one wants in talent because of his inter- interdisciplinary skills, and he ex- and he's the ultimate learner, and he's constantly learning throughout the course of his career, and how he makes the super people- meaning focused also, and and the and he makes the people around him better. And he mm. figures out how to make them better. And he's, anyways, he went through a whole spiel about LeBron. And I said, put it to him, LeBron or MJ, you know, who's the greatest of all time? And he says, LeBron, no question. And he went for, through all the reasons why MJ was great, but LeBron is better. Now, one thing we did not get into in that conversation is one of the, I tend to agree with him, by the way, and I don't want people's heads to explode. I tend to agree with Tyler that LeBron will, history will judge him for a variety of reasons as the greatest of all time, even though I think he's a complicated guy. Uh, but but one thing that that Tyler did not talk about is LeBron changed um, the role of players in the NBA in terms of not just being employees. Mm-hmm. He he recreate. I mean he he was he was with the Cavs when he joined the NBA, and then he said, you know what? I I see a superstar team, a champion team with the Heat. I can I can I can create. We can win a title with the Heat, and I see Dwayne Wade there, and you know I'm gonna. I'm going to put together a, a quote-unquote dream team over at the Heat. He did that. They win a couple titles. Then he's like, oh, wow, I can go back to Cleveland, my hometown, and I can go play for it's sort of his hometown, near his hometown. I can go back to the Cavaliers. No one thought he would ever come back to the Cavaliers. He comes back to the Cavaliers. He sees all these, all these assets there. That he gets Kevin Love. He gets Kyrie Irving. Boom, wins another title there. Then he says, okay, and now I'm going to go 
create a team in L.A. and he and he gets Anthony Davis, and he, it's suddenly like the players are in charge. He's like a coach and a GM and a star player, all in one. And I was thinking, <laughs> that, I mean, he is talk about an innovator, but he kind of gripped the situation and said, I have the influence to be more in charge than players have been. And I'm going to create these situations and I'm going to create these opportunities for me. Now you could say, Oh, only LeBron could do that. He's a superstar, but that's not true. There's, you actually see this more and more. I'm not saying, you know, the, every player in the NBA can do this, but you're seeing more and more elite players say, I'm going to grip this. Does that fit with your, I mean, is that sort of the high, it's a high-end first-class example, but it is, it is a version of what you're talking about. It's, I mean, I don't know if that's about meaning, although I guess meaning could come from gripping the well, situation it was, it was and interesting. It. It's an interesting, if you want to look at the, you know, Michael Jordan versus LeBron James question, uh, the, the way it's usually framed, and in fact, the way you framed it, maybe the way you framed it with Tyler Cowen, you know, who is the better basketball player, right? That quickly becomes sort of where you went with it, is who's the better leader who makes everyone better around Well, the them. debate normally is about stats, right? Jordan won six titles, LeBron's only won yeah. four. Right, but, 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 and, and, but then you say, but then LeBron has, is the highest scoring that, record. But I'm saying right, it's not about that, stats. And Tyler right, but was well, I'm going to go that. one step further because I'm saying, you know, first of all, you know, Jordan and the conflict, you know, with Scottie Pippen, right. you could you could say that's a talent conflict. You know, you talked about the move from Cleveland to Miami. That was remember there were three people walked out on that right. stage, not one, right. um, uh, th that were taking their talents, and that was one of the things that changed the game. But I would go one step further, and I think you then have to use the metric beyond stats which is the meaning impact. And I think if you were to compare, say, either one of them with, you know, arguably, say, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, Muhammad Ali, you would have to say that LeBron James reminds you more of Muhammad Ali in terms of his impact and his voice outside of the game, right? So that there are now, uh, you know, voting booths in every NBA stadium, right? And conversations that are going on, mm -hmm. and that's the change. Any change in the history of work has always come in the relationship between workers and you know, employers and employees from the employees. Mm -hmm. Going back to seven days a week, then became six days a week, then became you know, the weekend. You're gonna go back to Major League Baseball, which was where the first union began, which was essentially the players organizing against. You can, in fact, make a football analogy in college football, right, with the transfer portal, like you know, taking the power away. I grew up in Georgia, right? It's not the Falcons, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's the Bulldogs, <laughs> right. right? That's the, you know, so that, yeah, you know. the Falcons the, are like the minor league team. Yeah, exactly, right? And so what's going on now? We're finally toppling, you know, the hated Alabama, right. and we have two national championships, at, you know, in a row, and then now here comes the transfer portal, and it's like going to weaken the power of the dynasty. So take it to anybody listening to us today. Go Facebook, Amazon, Google. In the last five days, Google makes this big announcement. You're going to come back to work, but only, and it's going to, if you don't show up for work, it's going to show up on your, you know, employee re review but only three days a week, right? Facebook, Meta, come back to the, but only three days a week, right? The, nobody's choosing to do that. Mm -hmm. It's because we are freed from the script. We are freed from the career. We are freed from the upward trajectory. 
the lead story as we take this conversation for all of this week in the Wall Street Journal. By the way, the Wall Street Journal, which uh, you know, literally seven days ago as we had this conversation, put 2,500 words from the search on, on the, the cover, cover of, of its the, weekend yeah. section. And I will tell you that what came from the amazing editor who made that thing work was you can't put this in the Wall Street Journal. You can't say meaning is more important than means. Wall Street is sitting right there in the right. title. And I'm like, wait, by the way, 50 plus men grumble about this. But if you look at the women and diverse workers and younger workers, you say, most of our readers are 50 plus men. And they put it there and it went to the top of the most email. And I have heard from people around the world, you've captured what's going on. So the most email all week was this insurance guy running this insurance company says, you can go remote. People sell their houses, they sell their cars, they move away. And he says, never mind. And they're like, screw you, I'm not going to come back anymore. This is a real thing. We are in the meaning moment. Well, and for companies, it means you need an agenda, you need your own audit, you need to provide this for your workers and for employees. It, the, 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 the call here is whenever you're in a workquake, because you or someone you know is in one now, don't follow the script. Go inside, follow the scripture, decide what brings you meaning right now, and chase that. And That's and, the great opportunity. And, and to our friend, who I'll tell you when we're done recording, who was <laughs> running that uh, publication, uh, it's not to roll your eyes when he hears the words job satisfaction. Uh, yeah. Well-being, well flexibility, right. satisfaction, inclusion. Everyone defines it differently. You better find out how they decide it. Yeah. We don't need to be Adam and Eve. So so, so we... <laughs> and, and, make, and work does not need to mean suffering anymore. It just doesn't. So, Bruce, we started this conversation with you know Abraham and Moses and the Bible, and we end the conversation with LeBron James, which I think he would find very fitting. That like, you know, maybe the order, maybe it should have started with LeBron and then those guys may have come second or third. But uh, we really, we really did cover a lot of territory. A little bit of Saddam Hussein. And right, I forgot about Saddam, Saddam, right. The, the Republican Guard <laughs> Palace, how could I forget? Right. Uh, you're the best. Name. All right, thanks for doing this, Bruce. We will uh, we will post uh, the the search in the post in the show notes. Uh, we will encourage our readers uh, to buy it at uh, as, uh, at Barnes and Noble, but they can actually buy it wherever they want, independent bookstore or wherever. Uh, and uh, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. That's our show for today. To keep up with Bruce Feiler, you can find him on Twitter at, at Bruce Feiler, B-R-U-C-E-F-E-I-L-E-R. And you can also subscribe to his newsletter called The Nonlinear Life on Substack. We'll post the link to that in the show notes. And of course, you can find his new book, The Search, as well as all of his books. He's got close to 20 of them at your favorite independent bookstore or barnesandnoble.com or, well, you know. Call Me Back is produced by Alon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. <laughs>